It's a joy to be with you tonight. Um, the part of that story that Tom didn't share with you is that I was supposed to be not just his breakfast date, but his hot tub date. <clears throat> um, if you know Tom, he loves a good hot tub. That's just, that's just true. And, uh, and I woke up at, it was supposed to be at like 6.30 that morning. And I woke up at about 6, and I just, you know, felt like I heard a word from the Lord, stay in bed. And uh, <clears throat> turns out it probably was, because had I been down there in that hot tub, um, we would have been talking, and, and I don't know what would have happened. No idea, but what a, what a cool experience. So my, um, my road to being on this platform, yeah, it starts over 27 years ago, I guess. With, um, with the Flaherty's coming to Faustin in early, early 1993. And uh, Faustin is way, 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 way north. <clears throat> um, getting close to Canada up in northern Minnesota. And these guys showed up. And I was young um, and, and really connected with Matt. Um, he's about a year younger than me. And we really connected and uh, have a friendship to this day. It's been just awesome. But um, Bethel is also the place that uh, Warren and Donna Heckman started their ministry. So that was their first church assignment. That was your first church assignment, um, at least as, as the senior pastor of a church, and mine as well. Um, so if we follow the pattern, I'll probably pastor this church someday, right? I mean, that just seems to be how things go. Um, but I was looking over our, uh, you can take out your copy of the Bethel Assembly Year of Jubilee from 1999, if you brought that with you. And uh, I was looking, looking at um, what both of these guys said about their time. This, this was 1999. Um, both Warren Heckman and, and uh, Pastor Tom wrote little snippets. Um, actually, I think Donna wrote this, but... She says this of her time in Faustin, certainly we will never forget the unique way water baptisms were done. I love this part. Since there wasn't a baptistry, we brought in a stock tank, put a curtain around it, filled it with water, and baptized people. Afterwards, Warren would siphon the water out of the tank by running a garden hose out the side door of the church onto the lawn. One warm spring day as the water ran out through the hose, we were watching from our house through our front window. Two young boys came walking along. Stopped, laid their books down, picked up the hose, and each had a long drink on the holy water. I'm sure they were both called into ministry after that. Ha! <laughs> I like that. Um, I also liked, Tom alluded to some of this already, but he says, when I think about our time at Bethel Assembly, there are several highlights I don't think I'll ever forget. One of them was when we brought in Dave Reaver and his team to the community. Anybody heard Dave Reaver speak? Yeah, lots of people. One of the greatest communicators I've ever heard, I think. Um, he says he and his team ministered in seven area schools during the day, including mine. Um, I was in middle school, I think, at the time. And then 1,800 people packed out the Faustin gym in the evening. Dave shared about his Vietnam experience and then had a time of honoring the vets. When those 20 or so vets came down to the front, everyone jumped to their feet and clapped for five straight minutes. Not bad for Scandinavians. I don't think there was a dry eye in the place. Something I remember well. My first youth pastor was Shane Holden. 
<laughs> How's that for intensity? Um, I do have a couple pictures, actually. Um, this first one, I think, is of the Heckman family back in 1966. Pulled this from the Jubilee as well. So if you're following along, it should be in there. But uh, as Garth, Garth must have been born in Faustin, had to have been. Uh, he's about one there on, on Warren's lap. So um, I think that's about 66, 67. Uh, then the next one is, uh, you probably can't see this very well, but this is how Shane looked when he left Faustin. Just a delicious mullet. I mean, look at that thing. Oh, I love it. He has pretty amazing hair now, still. Um, you know, that shaved side and that big old pelt that goes down the, the, the middle. Um, he's, I've watched him preach a few times recently. He's, he's twice as big as he was when he was in Faustin. It's just unbelievable. He was enormous then. So, you know, to see him now, it's pretty crazy. Uh, and then, of course, I had to bring a few pictures of the Flaherty family from their time up north. Uh, so let's go ahead and look at those. Again, maybe not the, the, the easiest to see, but, but here's the whole clan. Um, I don't know if this is installation Sunday or something, but uh, I just love this. Beth is just little, tiny. Matt, he's got the, the pants hiked up inside of his, his tube socks there. I love it. Um, I found a few others. These are all from our, like our church scrapbooks from the 90s. Next one, there's Tina. She's about, what, two, three? She's about th four. Four. And look at all that. Look at all that dark hair, Pastor Tom. I love it. Uh, the next one, Pastor Tom leading worship. You ever led worship here? No? Goodness. Left those days behind a long time ago, right? So that was an anomaly. And then <laughs> I had to throw this one in because it's just too good. That's me on the, the far left. And Matt Flaherty looking sultry. This was our band in the early 2000s. And we were something, I'll tell you what. So good trip down memory lane. Looking through scrapbooks, looking through old photos. I've been to many conferences. Um, probably was to six or seven down in Montevideo, and uh, times of great joy, times of great worship, times of great teaching, times of intensity. Um, I still can think of a sermon that Brian White gave in Montevideo on dreaming. He read the most boring passage of Ezekiel you've ever read. <clears throat> it was all about the dimensions of the temple, and I remember him going on and on and on. <laughs> And, on, and he finally said, are you feeling blessed yet? <laughs> you know? It's just like, and then it's so many cubits down the steps and out the back, you know. And, and then he went on to preach one of the most powerful sermons I think I've ever heard on when dreams die and when God redirects dreams. How many have had a dream redirected in your life that you look back on and you say, thank God he redirected that because the trajectory I thought my life was going I remember doing an interview. We were teaching overseas, and I did an interview with a school in Rugby, North Dakota. Nothing against Rugby, North Dakota. But I remember doing that interview and saying to myself, I definitely got that job. Oh, that was the best interview I've, I've ever done. It was amazing. And then I didn't get the job, you know. And we took a different position overseas. And it was that fall then that my friend Tim Carlton got a hold of me and said, hey, you know, 
I really feel like God is telling me that you're supposed to follow me in Faustin as the youth pastor up here. And that's what ended up happening. And, you know, I had my heart set on rugby. And sometimes things have to go uh, a different direction. So, um, <clears throat> so it's been, it's been very cool to see uh, Pastor Tom and Alice's life since Faustin down in Montevideo and now here for 13 years, you said. Um, hardly seems possible. But their impact at our church was profound. You know, um, I was preaching a while ago on discipline. And somebody said, oh, I remember a, a sermon that Pastor Tom gave. You know, this is 25 years ago or something. It was desired uh, devotion and delight or... or uh, Desire, discipline, and delight, sorry. Desire, discipline, and delight. And then I was talking with my dad uh, a few weeks ago and, and saying, you know what, I, I think I'm going to be preaching here on progressive Christianity and legalism, you know, two sides of the, of, of the road. And he said, I remember a sermon that Tom gave on legalism and license, you know, and, and it's just to, to hear this stuff. This is why pastors use alliteration, by the way, because it sticks in there, you know. And um, so... Just a, a wonderful few years. It was too short in Faustin, but, um, but it's wonderful to be with you here tonight. So I want to say this as we get going. Uh, there are no shortcuts to intimacy with God. There's time. There's intentional engagement. There are the Christian disciplines. Uh, there's prayer and worship and fasting and giving and mission and study of Scripture and silence and service and simplicity, solitude, submission, all the S's. But it's hard, to, it's hard to have a shortcut or a hack to intimacy with the Lord. And so I want to just, tonight, I want to talk about uh, sort of setting the stage for intimacy in three different ways that, that we can do that um, in a sermon that I've titled Moving Day. I'm a, I'm a lifelong golfer. They always call Saturday Moving Day. That's the day that something has to happen. That's the day that you got to make a move, right? And so um, we're going to talk about these three things. And, and as we do that, let's just, let's open our hearts. Um, I've been reading through the Gospels in July, all four Gospels in July. So we're going to start in Mark, and then we're going to go to John, and then we're going to go to Matthew, and then we're going to finish with Luke, okay? So not the whole Gospel, um, but we're going <clears> to <throat> look at just some of the, some of the beautiful stories that help us get a little closer to intimacy with Jesus Christ. And as we do that, let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you guide us in our time? Would you speak? I think of the Anglican prayer that says, Holy Ghost, come Holy Ghost, our souls inspire, enlighten us with your celestial fire. For if you are with us, nothing else matters. And if you are not with us, nothing else matters. But I, I don't really have bread tonight to feed all of these people. I just brought a little sack lunch. And I need you to reach down in your power, in your wisdom, in your grace, in your goodness, and speak and move and challenge and exhort and encourage so, Father, as we go to your word, would you bless us? Would you purify us in mind and eyes and words and hands and feet? 
that our whole beings might reflect the glory of Jesus to a world that needs to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's talk about noise a little bit. I'm going to Mark 5. You can turn there with me if you'd like. There's a story here that gets at this issue of distraction. And I love what it tells us about how Jesus dealt with distraction. Jesus was a man uh, thronged by people most of his ministry. And when I look into the Gospels and see him ministering, and, and sometimes it says, and then they got in the boat and went away from the crowds, and the crowds found them. And so often it says, and Jesus looked at the crowds and had compassion on them and picked right up where he left off. Crisscrossing the, the Sea of Tiberias, whatever it was, there was just such a crush of people. This story is no exception, um, where he heals uh, a woman on his way to uh, an even greater miracle of raising a girl from the dead. But Mark 5, we're going to read verses 35 to 43. So he's, he's already been ministering, and, and now he's been uh, confronted by a synagogue leader named Jairus, who has asked him to please come and heal his daughter. And as he goes, of course, a woman with years' worth of issues um, touches the hem of his robe, crawls through the crowd, touches the robe, and then in fear and trembling says, yes, it was me, and he, he stops there for a while, and then the, the people show up and say, no, you don't have to bother Jesus anymore, Jairus, your daughter has died. And so this is where we pick it up in Mark 5, verse 35. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Everybody has their version of the Bible that they prefer. Sometimes, for certain stories, I prefer the Jesus Storybook Bible. I don't know about you. Um, I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones renders the end of this story in the Children's Storybook Bible. She says this, Jesus walked into the little girl's bedroom, and there lying in the corner in the shadows was the still little figure. Jesus sat on the bed and took her pale hand. Honey, he said, it's time to get up. And he reached down into death and gently brought the little girl back to life. The little girl woke up, rubbed her eyes as if she'd just had a good night's sleep and leapt out of bed. Jesus threw open the shutters and sunlight flooded the dark room. Hungry? Jesus asked. She nodded. 
Jesus called to her family, bring this little girl some breakfast. Jesus helped and healed many people like this. He made blind people see, deaf people hear, lame people walk. Jesus was making the sad things come untrue. He was mending God's broken world. I love that phrasing. Jesus reached down into death and brought the little girl back out. And I was reading that uh, to my kids some time ago and thinking about how for some, for a very few, Jesus reaches into death and actually brings them back into this life. And what a strange thing that would be. (laughs) What a strange thing it would be to die twice, wouldn't it? And then I was thinking of how of how for some, Jesus reaches down into death and brings a person into eternal life. And that, to me, is just such a beautiful thought. That for some of you, you've lost, well, for everybody in here, you've lost somebody dear to you. But to think that Jesus reaches down into death, and for those who know Christ, pulls them up into eternal life, that that is really something. But for the purposes of this point that I'm making, we're talking about noise. We're talking about how Jesus cut through noise to do something, to do the will of God, to complete a mission. And he had to put some people out here, it says. So I was, I was reading up on funerals in Jesus' time, you know. That was a wild affair. I mean, there, there are people here that are hired to wail and weep and gnash teeth. So you have people leading a procession specifically to, to bring the pandemonium level up as high as, as we can get. How do we do funerals here? Not like that. We're pretty somber most of the time, right? We're, we're pretty solemn. I, I mean, I've, I've been to funerals and done funerals that are, that are almost fun because the person was, was aged and they knew Jesus, and, and there is a type of funeral that can be a little bit like that, but we don't, we don't see funerals like this one. Uh, you know, you have, you have, Matthew says you have flute players going through, flute players, professional mourners, people wailing, people paid to wail. That's an odd funeral. Then, then you have all of the all of the customs around what you had to do to show your grief if you were uh, a family member. If you were a family member, you wore specific garments so that you could tear them in specific places, you know? And uh, the, the Jewish traditions were built up and up and up over time so that you get to this point where Jesus is walking into this house and apparently there were 39 different rules or, or whatever traditional rules about how to tear your garments. I mean, that's just... That's weird. But that's how it was. And so Jesus walks into this house. He's already thinned out. He's already thinned out nine of his own disciples. You guys just stay out here. I'm taking these three. We're going in. He gets to the house and this chaos, just a chaotic scene. He steps into this. What does he do? He puts all those causing commotion and distraction out of the room and says, little girl, I say to you, get up. Luke 8 tells us, he actually says, stop wailing. Matthew 9 says, he actually tells the people, get out. You got to get out. 
There's work to be done in here, and I can't do it with this going on. Or I can do it, but I'm going to specifically eliminate some of this chaos. In Acts 9, Peter does the same thing. I read Acts 9 where he raises Tabitha from the dead. And he does the same pattern. He, he walks into this house and he tells the people, go away. Get out from here. Casts them out is what the Greek says. He casts them out. And he walks in and he just simply says, Tabitha, get up. He'd seen this done before. So I'm pondering this passage in Mark 5 and just thinking about this year. Has this not been a year of pandemonium? Has 2020 not been just a year of din and chaos and, and bedlam and whatever other words you want to slap on it? This has really been quite a year. It just bounces. I mean, it's COVID and it's election. It's COVID. It's, it's race tensions. It's COVID. It's Suleimani in Iran. It's COVID. You forgot about that, didn't you? It's Harry and Meghan moving to Canada. It's COVID. It's like, like you, you forget all the other stuff that's happened this year because... Because COVID has been going on, right? And we get these momentary breaks where something eclipses it, and then we come back to this, this thing. This has been a year of pandemonium. This has been a year of noise. And I look in the Gospels, and I see Jesus eliminating noise at times, eliminating distraction at times. Luke is good at chronicling this. Luke 4 Verse 42 says Jesus went out to a solitary place. Luke 5.16 says Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. That one in Luke 5 is in between. He's working, working, working miraculous stuff. Then he withdraws to lonely places. Just one verse. And then he's working, working, working miracles again. Luke 6.12 says one of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. I don't know what noise there is in your life. I don't know what stuff you need to figure out a way to, to minimize, to cast out, to set aside, to put away from yourself. I don't know what that is. I do know that life will hand you continual options for distraction. One after the other, after the other, after the other, your entire life. We are in a distraction age. And so, frankly, one of the unique things about the, the, the COVID pandemic stuff is that it's been both a distraction constantly and it's been a way of eliminating distraction, hasn't it? Interesting. It's been a way that, that has put people in their homes. But you... In your life, I mean, what are the things that just create noise, just background noise constantly? Just, just, just stuff that's going to keep you from ever getting alone with your Father in Heaven and just spending some time. All of us have them. All of us have tendencies to keep tripping over the same distractions. So, <clears throat> the first thing I think about when I think about intimacy, is distraction. You know, several years ago in Seattle, that same year of the hot tub story, um, Pastor Tom did a devotional session 
out of Luke 10, the end of which chronicles the, the story of Mary and Martha and their different approaches to serving Christ, right? And <clears throat> that sticks with me because that's a story that tells us that many distractions does not intimacy make. <laughs> and Martha is doing her best, and it's easy to feel sorry for her because it's certainly easy to see how sincere she was. And yet, she kept forgetting. She kept putting on the back burner the one thing. And Jesus says, there's only one thing. And the one thing is to sit in my presence. The one thing is to be with me. The one thing is to continually soak in, steep in my goodness and my joy and my teaching and my love. So, distraction. A second piece of intimacy that I want to talk about tonight is this. Intimacy with God requires knowing and following His voice, not counterfeit voices. Turn to John 15 with me, if you will. John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. My Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. He starts by saying, I am the true vine. Aletheos is the word. That which is real, true, genuine. Opposite to what is fictitious, counterfeit, imaginary, simulated, or pretend. Opposite to what is imperfect, defective, frail, uncertain. And then, over the course of those 11 verses, he says, remain or abide. If you have the King James, it says, abide in me. 11 different times, remain with me, tarry with me, sojourn with me. Be continually held with me. Be, continue to be present with me. I've been thinking a lot over the last month, or maybe it's over the last several years, about counterfeits. About counterfeits. I'm not going to talk about money. I'm just talking about counterfeit gospel. Counterfeits to Jesus. 
I've been preaching at my church on progressive Christianity, which is a, a, a counterfeit kind of Christianity. And so this call to, to abide in Christ, to abide, to abide, to continually stay present with Christ, to continue to be with Him, to remain in Him, to tarry. I like that word. To tarry with Him. <laughs> to just be with Him. There's no gigantic agenda. There's no whatever. I mean, I, I think that's so much what this, what this conference is about. There's, let's have less agenda and more time just being with Jesus. Just letting His love soak through into the cracks. Just being continually present. You know, husbands, you get, you get in trouble for this, don't you? For a lack of continual presence mentally. Right? Like, this is hard. It's hard. Abide, 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 abide. I've been preaching on this counterfeit Christianity, progressive Christianity. <sighs> progressive Christianity says all kinds of things. It's a type of Christianity that, that basically says the Bible is neither inerrant or authoritative. Jesus didn't die on the cross to atone for sin. Jesus is simply one way among many to a transcendent experience with God. The miracles recorded in Scripture are complete poppycock. Hell isn't real. Heaven probably isn't either. God is not a God of wrath or judgment, but only a God of love. Then, of course, we have to talk about what love means, but that's another thing. Talks about deconstructing orthodox beliefs until we have the essentials. What are the essentials? I don't know. Whatever I'm feeling, kind of, right now, in this moment, are the essentials. God and Christian doctrine must evolve and change with the times. It all kind of started uh, for me, I was watching an interview a uh, month ago, two months ago maybe, and uh, <clears throat> this person was talking about this epidemic in Christianity right now, progressive Christianity. And it really resonates with me because I immediately took out a, a notebook that was sitting there and I wrote down 20 names. They just rolled off, 21 I think it was. 21 names just rolled off. Friends of mine, close personal people in my life who are into this stuff, who have, who have veered into a very dangerous form of non-Christianity that wants to masquerade as Christianity. The, the interview, actually, the title of it was something like Atheism is even, uh, Progressive Christianity is even more dangerous than Atheism. That caught my attention because... You know, I, I begin to mull this over, and I end up thinking, in the Gospels, it's pretty clear that there are two sets of people that, that Jesus speaks to, and the one set is the religious elite. You have both the, the, the liberals of his day, the Sadducees and the conservatives, the Pharisees, and then you have tax collectors and sinners, you know, capital S category sinners. People who are obvious sinners. People who can't show their face in the temple because they're sinners. People who shouldn't associate with the, 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 the clean, who are doing their best to keep the commandments. And what do I see time and time and time and time again? I see that the way that Jesus deals with the religious elite is <laughs> really crazy. Read Matthew 23. It's one of the more shocking sermons that, you know, or whatever, whatever you want to call it, dressing down. I like the word excoriating. He just excoriates the Pharisees. 
for the way that they are creating hindrances. In their, in their supposed piety, they are creating hindrances. You sons of hell, he calls them. You brood of vipers. You, you whitewashed tombs. Fill the dead men's bones. I mean, he's not mincing words. Do you ever know Jesus to mince words? I don't. Is this reading John 5 and 6, you know, where he goes on this long talk about how you got to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and that had to be another shocking sermon that he gave, right? So shocking that it says, and, and, and a lot of people just left. They just, they just walked out because it was hard teaching. So I wrote down these 21 names. 13 of them pastors. Okay, this is where it gets really real for me. Nine of them still in pulpits. Not a clue what the gospel actually is. In fact, if you, if you dig into this stuff, and for some of you, this hits home really hard. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And for some, you're like, I, what, progressive Christianity... If you dig into this stuff, there is a complete refusal in progressive Christianity to even identify at all what the gospel is. They'll just say, I don't know. Christians, and specifically Christians in pulpits, must know what the gospel is. Must know that there is this thing called sin that needed to be dealt with. Must know that Jesus came as a ransom for many. He came to pay off a debt. We must know that. I look into progressive Christianity and I see a, a, a group of people who want to take all the wrath and justice stuff. Let's just sweep that aside. Let's focus on the love. Love is just the, the affirmation of all people right where they're at all the time. That's, that's love, okay? So we're going to operate out of that. We're going to sweep all this stuff away. And, you know, whatever the gospel is, I mean, you know. Christ Jesus died for our sins, was raised on the third day, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God. He holds the keys of death in his hand, Revelation 1 tells us. He holds the keys of death so that he, you know, he reaches down into death still and brings us out to be with him forever. And friends, having a bunch of pastors, Having a bunch of people in Christianity that have absolutely no idea what the way and the truth and the life is, is a problem! We have to know what the answer is. The answer is God incarnate, Jesus Christ. And if we don't know that, you know what I pray for these, these nine that still fill pulpits and have no idea who Jesus really is? I pray that either there would be a day of reckoning and reconciliation with God himself, that there would be a, you know, knocked down on the ground on the Damascus Road sort of experience, or that they would get out of a pulpit. Because we cannot have people in pulpits that have no idea what to tell people who are lost, who are on their way to hell. We cannot have people filling pulpits. <sighs> Reminds me a lot of Judges Chapter 17, 21, where it says, In those days Israel had no king. And what? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did as they saw fit. That's a bad place to be. John 10. 
John 10, Jesus has just healed a man, born blind. That's John 9. He's healed uh, uh, physical blindness. And then <clears throat> the Pharisees are, are hassling him about the fact that it was done on a Sabbath. Same story, different day, you know. Different Sabbath. They're hassling him about this. They're hassling the man. Because they ask him, who healed you? And he says it was Jesus. And Well, who do you think he is? He's a prophet. It's just this... It's just this bizarre back and forth like there so often was, you know, with Jesus healing people on the Sabbath and this being uh, a reason that many times it says, and the Pharisees immediately went out and tried to look for a way to kill him, you know, healing shriveled hands, healing blind eyes on the Sabbath. It, it, just, it just shocks me to read those things next to each other in Scripture. Here's a healing of a person who's been bound with some physical whatever, for all these years, and it happens on a Sabbath, and verses following that say, and then the Pharisees went out and tried to figure out how to arrest or lay their hands on or kill Jesus. Hardness of heart? <laughs> so John 10, John 9 ends with a discussion of spiritual blindness, and it spills over into John 10. And the first verse of John 10, that's where we're going to pick it up. It says, I tell you the truth, the man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way as a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought, excuse me, when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. And here I'm really starting to feel this. I'm really starting to feel this tension. I'm really starting to feel the pull of my generation away from God's Word. Away from the actual Gospel. Away from what we know and what we can say we know about God. Because when you lose a grip on this, it's a, it's a slick slope. And it goes down quick. I'm just going to read that over again in verse 4. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and rob robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Thank God. Thank God that when Elijah went down to, to Mount Horeb after that whole thing, after that whole thing being what happened at Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18, beautiful stuff, and then Jezebel gets after him and he runs, and all of this stuff is going on.
It gets pretty whiny. Doesn't Elijah? I'm the only one. I'm the only one. I'm the only one left. When in fact there are 7,000 who have not bowed a knee to the Baal. The, the assorted Baals. 7,000. There is a remnant. Thank God that there is always a remnant. Thank God for Genesis 18. Is it Genesis 18? Pastor Tommy, you'll have to help me. Where Abraham haggles with God over Sodom. <laughs> That's really quite a story. Lord, if there are 50 righteous in the city, will you spare it? Yes, I'll spare it for 50. 45? Yes. 40? Yeah. 30? Yeah. 20? Yeah. 10 people? Yes. I will spare the city for 10. Doesn't spare the city. Lot gets out because he's Abraham's kin. That's it. You know, that story actually brings me a lot of joy in this day. You know why? Because we are not at that point. We are not at the point in this country where sulfur and fire are going to rain down from heaven because there is a remnant. Thank God. There's a remnant. It's alive and well. It is following the voice of the true shepherd. There are many, I would wager to say millions, of people in this country right now who listen to the voice of the true shepherd, who follow him, who are doing their best to follow in obedience. And intimacy always follows obedience to Christ. And so I read Genesis 18, and although it is a, it is a cautionary tale of woe to be certain, I look around and I have great reason for hope. In this country, in this state, in my state of Minnesota, we were, we were watching um, in our church a couple weeks ago a documentary called The American Gospel, and, and uh, we were having discussion afterwards about just how dark, how, how heavy things feel. How, how evil some things feel, how there's just kind of this palpable thing, it seems like, over our country. And one of the people that was there, I love when she's at prayer meetings, I love when she's at anything, because she always just seems to find a way to bring it back to, hey, Elijah, there's more than you, okay? There's a remnant. So you and your pity party, you know, you're, you're just fine. God has a remnant. And she said, you know what? You know, another time of just great, intense chaos in this country was the 1960s when I was a kid. And I got saved in the 60s. Why? Because it was so obvious what was right and what was wrong. And this, this delineation line came and, and there's all this stuff going on over here. And I just could tell, I could feel that none of that stuff is going to get me where I want to go. And that there actually is in life an answer to what's going on. And it's not free love. And it's not LSD. And it's not any of this other stuff. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. The one who was and is and forever will be. And Scripture tells us so plainly in one of the great creeds of the New Testament that someday 
Someday, every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that is going to be a beautiful day for those who have submitted and bent a knee already. And it is going to be a day of terror for those who have not. Whew! <clears throat> There is great temptation to believe lies about God and who God is. And this progressive stuff has ensnared a lot of people that I love in my life. It is a false Christianity. It is not Christianity. It is like Pontius Pilate, something that seeks the approval and affirmation, acclamation of people over the approval of God. Pilate stood in the presence of God himself incarnate looked right in the face of the eternal way, the truth, and the life, and asked this question, what is truth? You're looking in his face. This tug away from, away from Scripture, away from God, it's founded on doubt, it's founded on cynicism, it's founded on mockery, it stresses intellect, experience, emotion, as the highest paths to enlightenment. I'm glad how I'm feeling is not the final word on what is true. Aren't you? Man. (laughs) That's a dangerous place. Founded on doubt and cynicism. Well, what does the Bible say? The Bible says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of what? scoffers, mockers, cynics. <laughs> but his, the law is in the, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Everything He does prospers. Friend, I wonder if you, whatever phase of life you're in right now, I wonder if you have sat too long with scoffers. I wonder if you have sat too long marinating in doubt. Only you can answer that question. Well, that's probably not entirely true. This is youth night. A lot of younger people. Fantastic worship, by the way. Thank you, Pastor Brian and all your crew. But... Sitting in the seat of cynics and scoffers, you probably know if that's happening. But if you're living at home, your parents definitely know if that's happening. And they would gladly help you assess that. (laughs) They would. (laughs) And uh, it's just scary as a parent. I have my three kids here. It's scary as a parent to see your children hanging out with people whose, whose paths, whose ways that they are on are not the ways of the Lord. That's terrifying. So you just have to know that. If you're, if you're still at home and your parents are trying to steer you away from certain people, it's because they see a pattern that is going to pull on you away from Jesus. And that is the worst possible place you could be, and that's the worst possible direction you could be going. 
Why? Because in his presence is fullness of joy. And in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. You're not going to find that stuff in the world. You're not going to find that stuff in all the whatever chaotic hedonism of our day. Just like my friend Miriam didn't find that stuff in the 60s. And when things get really dark, light gets really bright. And I'm so thankful for that. So again, church, we have got to know the way, the truth, the life. We have got to know who is the gate for the sheep. I want to go to Matthew 7. We're not going to spend as much time here as we should. But I want to reinforce this stuff that I'm talking about with some scripture before we move on. Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this. Once again, we're back to gates. Verse 13, enter through the narrow gate. Wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Verse 15, watch out for false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapevines from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. The gate is Jesus. The way is Jesus. John 14, he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Many other counterfeits will try to come in, but he is the way. So back to 1 Kings 18. Elijah stands before the people of Israel and he asks them a question. What's the question? He says, how long what? How long what? How long will you stand between two opinions? How long will you waver? How long will you waffle? How long will you go back and forth between Jehovah God and all of this, this idolatry that's going on in the land? How long? If, if the Lord is God, then serve Him. And if Baal is God, then serve Him. And then they get into it, right? Then they get into it. Then they set up the altars and they call on their gods and Jehovah God answers in fire. How long will you waver? And this question has been going in my mind. There may be somebody here. I don't know. There may be somebody here sitting, listening, who says, when I get into this stuff, it's not a friend of mine. It's not, it's not a, uh, a dear person in my family. It's, not what I, it's me. It is actually me. I'm the one wavering between two opinions. I'm the one standing in between God on the one hand and all this other stuff. I'm the one who's sliding into this. The Holy Spirit, oh, bring conviction, Lord. I pray that the Holy Spirit would bring conviction to somebody's heart if you feel like you're, you're, you're sliding into this stuff. 
Oh, man. Acts 27 tells the story of Paul going to Rome. He's going to Rome, and they leave too late in the season, really. And the seas get just crazy. This is a bad idea. There's 200, what, 76 men aboard this ship. They're headed to Rome. He's going to preach the gospel before emperors and Caesars. And, and, and the seas get really bad off the coast of Malta. You know this story. And they fight against this thing. They fight against it for a couple of weeks. They're, they're just lost at sea, being driven by the wind. People want to throw people overboard. They want to throw cargo overboard. They want to... Eventually it says some of the guys go off and they, they pretend that they're doing something else and they want to cut the lifeboats and be in them and, and get away from the ship. Paul tells the assorted people on this ship, you've got to take some meat. You have got to eat something because it's going to be crazy when this ship breaks apart. And then you're going you're gonna to go from this ship, you're going to go onto a foreign land. Like, there are difficult days ahead. You have got to take some meat to sustain you for the journey. And when those guys are off trying to cut the lifeboats and hop in them, he tells the commander, what? If any of them leave, they'll die. They will not make it. And I feel like, I feel like we're in this moment where if we abandon ship completely, we're not going to make it. What, what, is, what is the ship? We have got to stay with Jesus Christ. We have got to stay with Scripture. We have got to stay with what is true. Because if we abandon this ship, we're all going to be lost. Everybody who cuts these lifeboats and tries to jump in them and go off into whatever, whatever sort of worldly pattern, because that's really what it is. It's a conformity to the pattern of the world. Be not conformed to the pattern of this world, right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we need to be on sort of a continual renewing. A continual renewing. That's, that's why it is so important to get alone. Sometimes you need to withdraw somewhere to pray and to, to reconnect, to reaffirm that intimacy with the one who is the way, who was the eternal word before the foundations of the world ever were. We cannot be abandoning ship. Are the seas rough? Yes. Do we have a long road ahead of us? I'm sure. We can't abandon ship. Thirdly, intimacy with God requires a lifestyle of repentance. We're going to move on to this and then we're going to be done tonight. I've thought a lot over the last year or two about Romans 8 and Luke 15 together. Together. Romans 8, <clears throat> called the Mount Everest of the New Testament sometimes for a reason. Romans 8 is so powerful. Aren't you glad for Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 after you get through the first four chapters? The first four chapters are pretty much, let me summarize, man is depraved, okay? Three words. Man is depraved. Man has issues. There are problems in the human heart. The human heart is, <laughs> there's wickedness. Man is depraved. 
And then he gets into, thank God there's an answer. In fact, when Paul is talking about himself in Romans 7, don't you love that dialogue back and forth with, with himself? I want to do this, but I do this. And I, I can't stop doing this. And I, wanna, I really want to be over here. I want to be this man of renewed mind and spirit all the time. But I just, there's all this stuff. Who will save us from the law of sin and death? Thanks be to God. It is through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh, thank you, Jesus, that there is an answer to all of that stuff from the first four chapters of Romans. Romans 8 ends with this towering pinnacle, these two verses. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future. He doesn't even mention the past. I always find that interesting. Neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation could ever separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord, right? And I was thinking about this while shoveling snow. We do that a bit in northern Minnesota. In fact, it just about killed me this, this last year. And the year before that was twice as bad. So getting up on the roof, we had two years ago, 2018, 2019, did you guys have tons of snow down here? I don't know how it works in Madison. Not really? We had just feet and feet of snow. I haven't seen a, a winter like that since 1997, which is when we had catastrophic flooding all over uh, Minnesota and North Dakota, if, you, if anybody remembers that stuff. Here? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys were up there. It was wild. We had a year like that a couple years ago, two winters ago. We had a blizzard that blew from the north, and I went on the back side of the church. We have a pretty gentle pitch on the back side of the church and there was snow I mean three and a half feet high for 60 yards you know and I'm going this is going to collapse so just whoa why am I talking about this somebody help me I was shoveling I was shoveling and I was thinking about Romans 8 thank you thank you for getting me back on track okay one second I was thinking about Romans 8, and I was thinking about Luke 15. Luke 15, of course, is all about parables of lost stuff. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And I was thinking how Romans 8 has been used, I guess, as a, as a sort of, uh, I would say those couple of verses have been fairly abused in, in the last many years to just kind of slap onto something like, like, your, your behavior and stuff doesn't matter. Just, like, do whatever. Because God's love is with you all the time. Always. Now, is God's love for you ever going to break down? No. Psalm 139 talks about, I don't care where you go. I don't care what heights or depths you go to. I don't care how far you run, wherever. There you will be. There you will find me. There you... Like, his love is not going to break down for you. But Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, does tell me that if I choose to, I can take my inheritance and hightail it out of here. I can separate from the Father. I can go my own way. I can take an intimate relationship and go. Is his love for me diminished? No. It is bedrock in our lives. 
But I, I see in that parable a disconnecting. A son saying, I'm going to go. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to live in disobedience far from you. And we also see the other side. We see the older son. We see that proximity is not enough. Right? We see that if it was about proximity, Judas would have never strayed. Judas would have never done what Judas did. Proximity is not the key. There's something else. <laughs> like there has to be proximity and softness. The younger son creates separation through worldly sinful living. The older son creates separation through entitlement, right? And both fall on this thing like, at the end of the day, it's about works. The older son says, all these years I've worked for you, I've slaved. You've never given me squat so that I can have a party with my, my buddies. Right? He's bitter. My works have not been good enough. The, the younger son, the younger son, it says, don't you love that verse? One of my favorite verses in Scripture is when it says, but then, you know, he's, he's feeding pigs. He's in the slop. He's face deep in the slop, fighting with pigs over their food. <clears throat> and it says, but when he, what? Came to his senses. Oh, man. When he came to his senses, he crafted a little speech. The speech was pretty good. It was nice. I'm going to go back. I'm going to walk up the hill. I'm going to give this speech. I've sinned against you. Can I just be a slave in your house? Works again. Works on the one side, works on the other side. Works, 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 works. Both boys separated from the father. This is a beautiful picture of repentance. Turning around, recognizing guilt, going back on the road by which you came. I read this and I think about Psalm 51. I think about that phrase that David uses, a broken and contrite spirit, O Lord, you won't deny. And I think about the beauty of repentance. Bob Goff has taught me about repentance too. Anybody know Bob Goff? The Love Does guy. His second book that he wrote, frankly, I didn't like it. Um, most of the time when I don't like a book, I don't finish it. Um, I don't know how you do that exactly. But sometimes I'm glad I did because you get to the end of this, this book of his and he starts relating this story that takes about five chapters to finish. And, <clears throat> you know, he gets into this story about, uh, I'm going to paraphrase a bit of it and then pick it up partway in. He gets into this story about uh, work that he does in Uganda, part of which is dealing with the witch doctors of Uganda. These are people for whom evil is their, their breakfast, lunch, and, and dinner kind of thing. These are... <laughs> I could lose a few more things out of here. <clears throat> These are people that are just... They're just up to horrifying stuff. One of the things they are 
doing is uh, child sacrifice. And so he says, you know, in here, um, I had met with the, I think it was the Supreme Court Chief Justice of Uganda to talk over the issue of how we, how we do anything about this. He's a lawyer. How do we do something about this? How, how, do, we, how do we stop this from happening? And he said it's very difficult for lots of reasons. One of the reasons is there's, there's just so much, they, they hold so much power over people in the country. There's so much fear, an incredible, intense amount of fear. The other thing is that the victims are always dead. You know, I mean, it's hard to, hard to try. It's hard to whatever with that situation. And so at a certain point in time, this witch doctor named Kabi performs one of these things. You know, they're always after certain parts of the body or whatever. And, and uh, out in the bush, he, he takes his kid and, and performs this ritual, whatever, but the kid doesn't die. And so they, 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 <laughs> they get Kabi. Um, they bring him before a jury. They convict him of this thing. And he is sent away for life in this, in this maximum security prison. It's supposed to house like a few hundred men. It's, there are 3,000, I think, there. The story, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, yeah, I'll pick it up right there. Bob says, he's mulling over all of this stuff that's happened. He says, then something happened I didn't expect. Kabi's rotting away in jail. He says, I started wondering about Kabi. Every fiber of my being wanted him to rot in jail. That would be his home for the rest of his life. I was okay with that, but my heart felt dark when I thought about Kabi. Felt far from God. I didn't like it. Jesus was talking to his friends one day and explained how he wanted us to live our lives. He pulled his friends in close and said something I bet surprised them. He didn't say they needed to use bigger words in their prayers or go to church more or not chew tobacco or dance. It wasn't behaviors. He said if we wanted to please God, we needed to love our enemies. I've already told you how I found out it's a lot easier to agree with Jesus than to do what he says. Relatable, isn't it? The command to love our enemies is a good example. The truth is, I don't want to love mine. He goes on and talks about <clears throat> this kid, Charlie, for a bit. And then he says, the, the minute that Kabi attacked Charlie, he became my enemy. He wasn't a little evil, he was pure evil. It's easy to talk a good game about loving your enemies until you have one. I realized if I wanted big things to happen in my life, I'd need to take bigger steps and risk more than I had before. So I decided to visit Kabi in prison. He says, Kabi entered the dark room where I was waiting. He had no shoes, was wearing a torn, dirty prison uniform. When he entered, he took a knee and told me how bad he felt about what he had done. Skeptical, I thought he was sorry just because we caught and punished him. He told me what it was like growing up the son of a witch doctor and what witchcraft had done to him over the course of his life. Then he said something that stunned me. He said, I know I'm going to die here. What I really need is forgiveness. His words hung in the air. Forgiveness for a witch doctor who tried to sacrifice Charlie? My immediate reaction was, absolutely not. He tried to kill the little boy I love, but something inside of me had started to change. The change hadn't been nearly fast enough but it was nevertheless happening. I didn't see a killer in front of me. I felt like I was looking at a criminal hanging on a cross next to Jesus. I thought of the words Jesus spoke to that criminal, today you will be with me in paradise. 
There wasn't a quiz Jesus gave to the guy to get in. He didn't ask him about his position on a host of social issues. Didn't ask him to change his behaviors or say a prayer first. He just said, you're in. And I would add to that, the spirit of repentance that the guy was under was part of that. He says, Kabi and I talked for a while about his family and what was important to him. I talked about my family, what was important to me. We talked about what I was learning but still hadn't figured out yet about love and grace and forgiveness and Jesus. Then something happened that will forever shape my understanding about the things Jesus talked about. Kabi said he wanted to put his faith and life in the strong and kind arms of Jesus. When he did this, you could say he was coming to Christ as people in many faith communities would. But in a way, I was too because I was moving away from just agreeing with Jesus to doing what he said when he talked about loving my enemy. What Kabi and I are both learning about love and grace and forgiveness is that none of us needs to fully understand it to fully receive it. Then he, uh, he tells the story of how he goes back and, um, and stands with Kabi, the, the warden of their prison there in Luzira, allows Kabi to share the gospel, and he says Kabi butchered the gospel so horribly as he tried to share it with these prisoners, but he, he got the exclamation point after the right stuff, and at the end he invited people up to receive Christ, you know, and hundreds of men came up, and he grabbed a water bottle and was flinging water on people, baptizing them, you know, and Bob says, you know, you can't do that, I mean, can you, can you, I, uh, yeah, I don't know, so this is going on, and, uh, <laughs> and hundreds of men accept Christ. And then Kabi says to Bob, you know what, Bob, I forgive you too. Kabi knew that if I was his enemy, he couldn't be perfect like his father in heaven was. And that's what he wanted bad enough to do something about it. He says in that moment, standing in the prison courtyard, I didn't see a witch doctor I helped convict. I saw Jesus. Standing barefoot in Kabi's clothes, I saw a guy who was becoming love. He goes on to this last chapter, and he says, Ever since then, the trial against Kabi, I've been meeting with witch doctors. Can you believe this guy's life? This is one crazy life. He says, My daughter-in-law, Ashley, who's also an attorney, got in a car with a friend and traveled around the country educating Ugandan high court judges on what the law is and how to bring these cases to trial. When I go to Uganda now, I send out word on the Bush radio in the north that the honorary consul of Uganda, Bob Goff, is actually the ambassador from the United States to Uganda. He says, I send out word that the honorary consul of Uganda has arrived and all the witch doctors are required to meet with me at the king's hut. They aren't, of course, but I'm a lawyer, and I make them believe they are. The crazy part is this. They come. Hundreds and hundreds of them. I've met with almost a 1,000 witch doctors so far. Some of them are pretty creepy. <clears throat> Several have brought little dolls that look like me. They stick pins in them while I talk. It's a little like being a pastor at some churches, I suppose. <laughs> Hello. <clears throat> Whoa. Not this church. <clears throat> But we're not afraid of these guys. They've got nothing compared to the kind of power love has. Before I meet with witch doctors in the king's hut, I'll go out into the bush and set up a sting. I have a camera that looks like a watch and another that looks like a pen. I go to a village posing as a wealthy businessman from Kampala, and I ask the local witch doctor if he would help me find a kid for a child sacrifice if I needed one. Sadly, without exception, they offer to find one for $30. 
Later, when I meet with them in the king's hut, I show them the video from the sting, and I tell them, you see this guy? He's as good as dead. You even talk about sacrificing a kid? It's over for you, too. I try to absolutely terrify them. By the looks of their big eyes and body language, it usually works. Because I'm learning about loving my enemies, I don't stop there. People who are becoming loved don't just use tough talk. They do difficult things. So after I scare the wits out of the witch doctors, I get on my knees and I wash their feet. When I do, I don't know who's more freaked out, them or me. I'm guessing me because I'm not a toe guy. He says, on one trip before we left, I asked the new leader of the witch doctors what they needed. Again, what is this guy's life? This is just bizarre. I was surprised by the answer. He said, people think we have power, so they want us around, but they don't really like us, so we're very isolated. I told him I was a lawyer and knew exactly how he felt. <laughs> but most of us don't even know how to read or write, he continued. Loving your enemies doesn't just mean learning about them or being nice to them or tolerating them. It means helping them. So I started a witch doctor school. <clears throat> I know, I know. Sometimes I wonder if this is crazy, but then I see what has been happening in the witch doctors' lives, and I don't think so anymore. We don't teach them how to be witch doctors. They already know how to do that. We teach the witch doctors at our school how to read and write. We have hundreds of witch doctors currently enrolled in the school and have graduated hundreds more. Get this, the only books we have in the witch doctor school to teach them how to read and write are the Bible and Love Does. That's his other book. If you've read either of these, you've been reading their textbooks. <laughs> he says, he goes on to talk about the graduation ceremonies and the stuff they're doing, and he says, not long ago... I got a call at midnight. I was out cold. I'm almost done. Don't worry. I was out cold when the phone rang. The call was from two witch doctors from the school. They said a little boy has been abducted by a new witch doctor in town. He's taken the child into the bush, but we know where he is. There was a pause. Then the two said, should we go get the child? By this time, I was standing on top of the bed shouting, get the kid. Four hours later, I received a short text message from these two witch doctors who used to do unthinkable wrongs but have now experienced the power of love and acceptance and grace at our school. Here's the message I received. We've rescued the child. He's with his mother. And a moment later, I received a text message that simply read, love does. I lost it. Do the witch doctors need to change? Yes. Do they need lots of stuff in their life to, to go away? Yes. Is it enough just to teach them to read and write? No. They need Jesus. They need Jesus. But I read this, and I think about a guy, a son with his face buried in pig slop who's gotten so far, so far away. And I think about these guys and I, I see them there and I, and I think about the scene that is described by Jesus in Luke 15 when the son gets to the bottom of the hill and starts the walk, the final walk to his house. And the picture of the father who runs in his direction, who sees him coming up the drive and who runs at his top speed, whatever that is, who hikes up 
what he's wearing. And he just goes. He just motors. Because there's my son. He's come home. There he is. And I think about Bob saying, the stuff that I'm learning as I deal with these guys. Bob, I think, sees himself kind of in the, in the older son. You know, it's easy to sit in the older son's spot, too, in the spot of judgment. Both hearts need a revelation of Jesus. Both hearts need a return to intimacy with Jesus. We don't want to live in judgment and entitlement. We don't want to live in pig slop covered in filth and sin. When you go back to Mark 5, Jesus says to the people in that, in that crazy funeral procession, she's not dead, she's just asleep. She's just temporarily <laughs> cut off. And I wonder <clears throat> if anybody in here feels like they need Jesus to reach down into whatever cold death you've been experiencing and to bring you back. I wonder who feels like you're at the bottom of a hill and it's going to be a long and humiliating walk up to the house. He runs to his son. He runs. So as we finish here, maybe today is moving day for you. Maybe you need to put some distractions out of your life today. The, uh, the worship team, you can come back. Maybe you need to put some distractions out of your life today to finally tell some things to get out. Maybe you've been asleep, disconnected from the vine for a time, and the word of God to you today is wake up. Strengthen what remains. Maybe you, like Kabi and Bob, like the lost son and his brother, need to do some repenting in contrition and humility. A broken and contrite spirit, God will not deny. Or maybe you've been courted by the world, gone after the praise and admiration of man. Maybe you see yourself in the progressive stuff that I talked about. And the word of the Lord to you today is, how long are you going to sit there wavering between two masters? Serve God. Serve God. Serve God. Get back into connection with Jesus. He is the way. He always has been the way. He always will be the way. He is the one who made himself a servant, who came down, who did not abuse his power, he was made in human likeness, found in appearance as a man, and suffered death on a cross for us. And it says that after that happened, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you stand as we head back into a time of worship? If you need to spend some time up here, I'm told we can do that as long as we are distanced. So 
Altar space is available. These guys are going to lead us for another segment of worship. If you need a time of just soaking, if you need a time of connection, if you need a time of just being reminded that you have a Father in Heaven, that wherever you're at, you may have walked far away, but don't you know that that when you turn around, He will run to you. He will come toward you with arms open in an embrace. And what a beautiful, sweet picture that is. Just come on. If you need time up here, just come. Let's spend some time in worship. <laughs>